It is the most significant set of events in all of human history. The week we celebrate this week called the Passion Week. It begins with shouting. The shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a direct quote from Psalm 118. The crowds were following him. Massive crowds. Shouting, singing, throwing their coats on the ground. Waving the palm branches. Their king is coming to Jerusalem. This was Sunday. Palm Sunday. On Friday... They were also shouting, same people, crucify him, crucify him. You think, how in the world can a group of people go from shouting Hosanna, this is our king, to saying crucify him? I think it's because they did not see what kind of king he was. And they did not want the kind of king he was. You see, for some reason, even though there, none of Scripture would portray the coming Messiah, the coming Christ in this way, they perceived in their minds that their conquering king would deliver them from Roman oppression, to deliver them from that political power from all of the suffering that they experienced under the thumb of Rome. But that's not why he came. This king came to deliver them from something far greater than the Roman Empire, the power of sin and the power of death. Now you think about that in comparison. Now we realize that there are a lot of political pressures, there are a lot of things in this world going on, in Europe, Eastern Europe, Russia, Ukraine, COVID, this sort of things that we would want deliverance from, but very temporal things. When Jesus comes, he is dealing with transcending things, sin and death, two things that no man, no woman, no person has ever been able to conquer. This is why he came. And so they rejected that. They wanted something more immediate and something more temporal. He has fulfilled all prophecy. He has come. And they crucify him on Friday. We call this week, as we said, the, the Great Passion Week. This morning, Diane read from the passage in Matthew 26, 36 to 46. And this is one of the gospel accounts of what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. And this morning, what I'd like to do is to unpack for us this brief section of Scripture because it's part of this Passion Week. By looking at the condition of his suffering in the Garden the cause of his suffering in the garden, and then finally the consequence or the result of his suffering. So what is taking place this week 
Thursday night of Passion Week is that Jesus is in the upper room. He had sent disciples ahead to prepare for the Passover. And the Passover is what we call the Lord's Supper. And we celebrate this in memory. The Jews would celebrate in memory of the time in Egypt when they put the blood on the doorpost and the sides to commemorate the coming Christ, the Messiah, and it delivered them. So they celebrate this Passover. And so when, when Jesus is breaking the bread and, and passing the wine, the cup, he is showing them that he is the lamb. He is the lamb that permanently fixes the problem. So he goes from this upper room experience. There are several things that took place during that time, but down the steps and out the gate of the city of Jerusalem. He'll cross over the Kidron Brook, or what we call the Kidron Valley, and go start up toward the Mount of Olives. And there is a garden there. We call it the Garden of Gethsemane. It means crushed olives or pressed olives. This is how they get olive oil, was pressing, crushing. And this is exactly what happens to Jesus as he is pressed and crushed. And we'll see that in a moment. But as they leave that upper room, he has just been betrayed by Judas. He has challenged his disciples on being a servant and not trying to lord over other people. There are many things going on here, but as he is, he is going down those steps and outside of that gate, he stops and begins to speak to them about the vine and the branches. This is John 15. It's probably one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. And there's a little statement in John 15 that says, For without me, you can do nothing. For without me, you can do nothing. That is a profound statement. He goes a little further, and we have recorded in John 17 what we call the high priestly prayer. This is when he stops and prays to his father for his disciples. And what's so amazing about this, he knows what he's going to face. He's praying for others. He knows he's going to the cross, but he's praying for his disciples, that they would be strengthened and helped and encouraged and that they would not fail. And he also prays for those who would become his disciples meaning he prayed for you. Everyone who would ever believe in the future, he prayed for you in that high priestly prayer. That's, that you can read that in John 17. So this is what he does, and they, they finally come to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he gives instructions to his disciples to wait and pray. So he has the bulk of the disciples wait and pray. He takes Peter, James, and John, who are his inner circle, the ones that spent more time with him, and then he goes alone from them and begins to pray to his heavenly Father. Here's a statement he makes. After he gives instructions to the disciples, he goes into this garden, and if you were to go to the garden today, uh, you they say that some of the same olive trees are still there that were there during the time of Christ. 
Diane and I have been there. And it's just a, a surreal experience to be in that place. Uh, these trees are very old. It was a quiet place. And we read in the scriptures probably the most predictable thing that Jesus ever did was go away and be alone with his father. Of all the things that you can see, many of them were unpredictable what Jesus would do. But this was the most predictable. He was always pulling away. And so he frequented this garden. It's obvious because Judas knew exactly, knew exactly where he would go on the night of the Passover. And it says, he, he said to his disciples, my soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. Have you ever felt that sad, that bad? Have you ever been so sorrowful in your soul that you felt like you were going to die? He was sorrowful unto death. And then it says, he went a little further and it, he fell on his face and he prayed, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He fell on his face. He felt as though he, he, the weight was so strong, so powerful that he would die. And it says the angels in Luke chapter 22, which is a parallel passage to this, it says, and the angels appeared, or an angel appeared and strengthened him. And in Luke 22, verse 44, it says, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. You see, this, this struggle, this agony of the God-man, Jesus is God and man. He, this great agony was not because of the Romans or because of the fickle crowd that would shout, crucify him. This agony was in his own soul. His own soul. As he was wrestling with what he was going to face. I don't think there's any way that we can begin to comprehend the weight, the crushing, the suffering. But it says that he was sweating. And I'm, I'm sure that you've been in that place before too, of maybe of agony or grief. or for, He is sweating drops of blood, which from what I understand and what I've read is significant because it is it is showing that your body is breaking down and starting to die when you're sweating blood out the pores of your skin you're starting to die in verse 46 he finally says after he comes back three times he returns to his disciples can't you watch and pray you know they're falling asleep he goes back three times. He's praying the same prayer. Lord, if it's my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Finally comes back and says, rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. 
And while he was still speaking, verse 47 says, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus and once again said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Of course they seized him. They blindfolded him. They mocked him. They beat him. They falsely accused him. They falsely tried him and convicted him. They flogged him. And they crucified him. That is how the events from Thursday evening led up to 9 o'clock in the morning on Friday when they nailed him to the cross. So this is what we find has happened here in this Garden of Gethsemane, the Garden of the Crushed Olives, is where Jesus had this great battle within his own soul. That is the condition. But I want us to look this morning at the cause of his suffering because we do talk often about the suffering servant. And we read a lot about the path of, that we have in following the suffering servant is that we will suffer as well. So what was, what was the cause of the suffering of Jesus? And I, I've kind of divided this up in two ways. One is previously suffering, and then particularly here in the garden, on his face, on the ground, what was he suffering? So previously, I think there is a degree of suffering when you take a holy God, you descend onto this earth, are put in human flesh, are born in the most humble place of a manger, you live in a very common world and life, exposed to all of the elements of humanity. When he descended onto this earth as a baby and lived this life, there was a degree of suffering in comparison to the glory that he came from. We, we can't forget that. There was what we call the agony of humanity. All of us experienced that. I, I feel that he experienced it to a greater degree because there was such a contrast from where he came. We've known nothing different than the life we've lived. He came from glory, from heaven, from perfection to this earth. And he lived for 33 years that way. I believe he suffered the rejection of the people of God. He came to his own people. And they rejected him. I think there was a great degree of suffering realizing that. And then also, even from his own followers. If you, if you chronicle through these Gospels and find that these thousands of people, literally thousands of people following Jesus, that when he was nailed to that cross on Friday, they were gone. They deserted him. They denied him. They rejected him. They would doubt him. So this is the suffering leading up to this. But 
But I would say that when you think about the Garden of Gethsemane, what in particular did Jesus suffer? And I, I believe in four ways. I think these are, these are significant. And I, you know, this whole past week I thought, Lord, help me to feel this. <laughs> and whatever level I can, I thought, this is the heaviest stuff I think I've ever studied. Particularly, he was about to be crucified. There was no form of torture or death more severe, more radical, more brutal. They take someone, usually flog them, and Jesus was flogged. The prophet Isaiah said that he was so disfigured that you could not recognize that he was even a man. So on the front, we have a cat of nine tails, strips of leather with metal in them that would would lash into the back and rip out the flesh. He was blindfolded, as I said, beaten, mocked, ridiculed, falsely accused. A crown of thorns thrust on his head, bleeding. He knew that that would be what would happen. So you think if this cup, when you think of what is this cup, the cup is really what he is about to do. And this is part of that cup, the physical suffering. But I don't think from reading through that this is his greatest suffering, while for us it would be beyond what we could possibly imagine if any suffering we've ever had was to be crucified. The worst of anything that is possible. But for Jesus, this was, this was just a physical part. Secondly... He became sin for us. He became sin for us. A holy God who had never sinned in all of his life took upon himself all of our sin. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says that, that, that in that moment when he was on the cross and he knew this was coming up, he would take upon himself the sins of the world. Now, if you were just to add up your sins at one point, it would be crushing. Because a lot of us can't even remember them. But all of us, And for all of the world, for all time, he took upon himself. And I believe this, that that thought is part of what really caused him to begin to sweat drops of blood. Third, his father would forsake him. From all of eternity before and after this point, of going to that cross. The Father and the Son had perfect fellowship and enjoyed that unity. Even while on earth, when Jesus was on earth, he would always be going away to spend time with his Father. But his Father turned away. That's why when we we read this cry from the cross, 
my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because when Jesus became sin, the ugliness and the awfulness of sin, that God turned his face away, and that separated him from his Father. And then finally, he knew that the wrath of God would be poured out on him. I would say this, that two things you need to know about God. Number one, he's a very loving God. God loves you. But he's also a holy God, and he is just. And if God is just, he must punish sin. And so when his son becomes all of the sin of all of the people, of all of the world, for all time, he will pour out his wrath in full measure upon him. You say, Jesus didn't deserve that. He never sinned. You're right. But he chose to take upon himself your sin, my sin, the world's sin, and endure the penalty of sin, which is the wrath of God. And God poured out his full wrath on his son, holding nothing back. So it was a great expression of holiness and the most incredible expression of love. Who would do that? Who would do that? Send your son for that. And what son would do that? God never compromised his holiness. He never did in his love. Perfectly holy and just and perfectly loving in this very act. And what's so amazing is, is that Jesus would do this for people who were crucifying him. We might think about dying for a friend, <laughs> dying for a loved one. I'd die for most of you. <laughs> You think about, <laughs> but it'd all be conditional. But you think about this, the, the very ones that were beating him and crucifying him and rejecting him and deserting him, he is saying, Father, forgive them. It's amazing. If it be possible, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You know, that's been kind of a bit of a mantra for me when I pray for something. Because a lot of times I don't know what God's will is. I don't know. So when I ask God for certain things, I don't know if it's his will. Some things I know are God's will. Other things I think, I don't know if that's God's will. So I pray that way. I say, Lord, this is what I'm praying for. I'm asking for <clears throat> but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Why, why do I say that? Because I'm trusting that God will do what's best and good and right. It's not easy to pray that because you, you'd rather have control of it yourself <laughs> rather than surrender that up. But it's because of the character of God that he is completely just, will always do the right thing, and no one has ever loved me more than he loves me. 
So I trust that. So you think when he says, if it's possible, is there another way? Is there another way to get forgiveness for people? Is there another way to rescue the world from sin and death? Is there another way to deliver people from the bondage that they're experiencing in this world? He knows there's not. I think as some commentators have made this statement that he is praying, let this cup pass, is that he would not die in the garden before he got to the cross. Because in fact, he was dying. And it's really amazing that he ever made it to the cross to die because of all of this that's going on. So his condition, he's in this crushed olive grove, being crushed. The cause of this is the weight of the sin of the world, the physical suffering, the turning of his father's back, the full wrath of God upon him, crushing him. That brings him to say, if this cup could pass. Then we come finally to the consequence of his suffering. The condition he's suffering, the cause is the weight, and then the consequence or the, re the result of this. In Luke 24, parallel passage again, it says, Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Think about that. Was it not necessary for Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory. You're going to see in the life of Christ and in those that follow him this connection constantly. Suffering glory. Suffering glory. There is the suffering of Christ and because of what was accomplished on the cross and the resurrection, there is the glory of Christ. And as followers, we follow the same path. There is suffering in this life. But there is glory that is coming. The end result. What glory is to follow? What, what is this glory, this suffering and glory? The glory was this, that death and sin are destroyed. In 1 Corinthians 15, recently we talked about how Death is swallowed up in victory. Sin is destroyed. Sin is paid for. The blood of Christ washes away the sin. Death is defeated when he rises from the dead. And he offers to us eternal life. He ascended up into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of his father. He is preparing a home for us in heaven. And he is coming again for us. That, my friend, is glorious. Every part of this is glorious. That's why next Sunday, and I can't wait for next Sunday, <laughs> Easter Sunday, we're going to talk more about the glorious part of this resurrection for us. Sin and death are conquered, ascension into heaven, preparing a home, coming again, offering to us eternal life, and we share in his glory.
Romans 8, verses 16 to 18, it says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. It means God's Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also be glorified with him. Then Paul says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. So it is true for Christ, it is true for us. The sufferings of Christ cannot be compared. As, as hard as they were, as crushing as they were, cannot be compared to the glory that would be revealed. And our suffering, when we are in Christ, no matter how painful the suffering in this life, is nothing to compare to the glory that will be revealed in us. Folks, we deal with the same stuff, the same cancer, the same car accidents, the same death, the same betrayals, all of the same things the world goes through. God doesn't deliver us from it. He delivers us through it to glory. And so the difference is not that we don't get sick and we don't have pain, but we have hope. And we see beyond that present suffering. You see, he came for us. Jesus, he came for us to rescue us. He came for you. He suffered for you. He sweat drops of blood on his face for you. He was tortured for you. He was betrayed and falsely accused for you. He died for you. For you. To pay your sins. Your sins. All of your sins. All of them. For you. And he rose again. Paid for your sins. Defeated death. And he offers to you the free gift of eternal life. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. This has nothing to do with religion. Did you hear me? This has nothing to do with religion. It has everything to do with relationship. That's it. He offers to you the gift of eternal life. And you say, well, what do I do? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> believe. He says, believe. I thought I'd have to go do all these things. No, no. Believe. I'm not talking about mental assent or just believing that way, but believing, receiving him as your Savior. Believing that he is the Christ, he is the Messiah. This is why he came, not to deliver you from Roman Empire or the political system in America today or all the problems we have with COVID, <laughs> all the junk in the world. He came to conquer sin and death for you. And so when he offers you a free gift of eternal life, you've got to make a decision. Do I accept that by faith? Do I, I say thank you? <laughs> That's really all you do. He said, just believe. 
Say thank you. Receive Christ as your personal Savior. He will forgive all your sins. He will give you the promise of eternal life. And he will take up residence with you and be with you every day, helping you through until that day comes that is glorious. So next week, Easter, I look forward to continuing this. But my prayer, above all prayers for you, is that you come to know God in a personal way by receiving the free gift of his son of what he accomplished for you on the cross. Let's bow together as we pray. Father in heaven, we are so, so incredibly awed by what you've done for us. Sending your son who endured such contradiction at the hands of sinners and yet never wavered all the way to the cross crying out, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. And that final cry, it is finished. The work is finished. The rescue is finished. Redemption is finished. There's nothing more we have to do but believe. So I pray, Lord, today, if there's someone here that has never trusted you personally, that they, even in this moment, might just say, Lord, I believe. I believe. I take you as my Savior. I receive that free gift knowing that all of your promises will prove true. And Lord, help us this coming week as never before to celebrate what you've done for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.